You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. We've been going through a series that's more topical and we don't really have a, a, you know, a, a firm text that we're in every single time. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go to Romans 6 in a second. So you can have your finger in Romans 6. I will get there in a second. Uh, many of you know that one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. I say that just so to impress people, because when you say your favorite author is Charles Dickens, that's impressive. Wow, that's amazing. And uh, I actually haven't read that much Charles Dickens, but I always say that my favorite author is Charles Dickens. Uh, I've read a lot more Dr. Seuss than I have Charles Dickens, so... One of his books, though, he describes a character whose name was Mrs. Pardiggle. Mrs. Pardiggle. And Mrs. Pardiggle was a Christian who spent her life, who dedicated her life to raise money for, uh, uh, for the, those who were less fortunate in Africa. Now, this is the, the, the 18th century, but she spent her, her whole life uh, trying to raise money for those who, were, who, who needed it, to send missionaries, to send support, to send money, to send resources to those who needed it, to the poor. The problem was uh, Mrs. Pardiggle was a miserable person. She was a miserable Christian. She did a bunch of good stuff, but she was a miserable, miserable person to be around. And it translated to her children and to her friends that no one could deny, wow, like, great, all the things that she's doing, but she was just a terrible person to be around. She had no joy. And Dickens makes it very clear that her life was incomplete without the joy that is to be experienced in serving God and growing as a Christian. And obviously, for Dickens to describe it, he's not only taking one particular person, but we all know, maybe even ourselves, the atypical, miserable Christian that serves in church, that may even teach Sunday school, that may, do, that may be generous, but they're just miserable people. They have no joy in what they do. It's almost like the desires that they have in life are never truly fulfilled. Here's, here's the truth that I, that I want to communicate through God's Word today. Is that God doesn't just want you to do things for Him. That's, not, that's incomplete if we just do work for the Lord. Ultimately, even more what it means to be a Christian, it's God wants us to delight in Him. And we are really missing what this is all about, what life is supposed to be all about, if we're just serving the Lord with no joy, just miserably. In our series, what we're going through right now for the, over the next few weeks, and we've, we're in our third week now, uh, going through a series called Stunted, all about, we thought it was, it was appropriate as we begin the year to understand what it looks like to grow as a Christian. What would the marks of maturity look like? One of you asked me that a few months ago, Aaron, what would you say are the marks of a mature Christian? 
And I hadn't really given it much thought, and I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity to kind of look at what I believe the marks of a mature Christian is. Last week, we looked at one of those marks of how you grow, but also uh, what a mature Christian looks like is the mark of consistency. It's the one who shows up over and over and over and over again. It's the one who shows their passion by showing up. Secondly today, what I think does get overlooked is simply joy. It's the one who is, doesn't just show up. The one who is fully alive. The one who doesn't just serve and do all the things that good Christians do, but the one who does it fueled by the joy and delight that they find in Jesus. It's a mark of maturity. I think we often have a wrong picture of maturity. At least I did growing up. Where I thought the more mature you were, the more serious you had to be. <laughs> you know, the more controlled your emotions were. You know, the 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 gloomier, the more spiritual. Anyone else with me? You know, there's the more gloomier in life, the more spiritual you were the more mature that you that you that you were those who have too much fun are almost or who experience life fuller are unbecoming and emotions and joy should be is a thing to be controlled not expressed that was what i grew up with and so it almost felt wrong to express joy because it was, it was unbecoming of a mature Christian. It's true in this life, like Mrs. Pardiggle, that you can do all the right, thing, right things, but you never seem to get what you really desire. There's this unfulfilled want or desire. The word joy is connected with this word desire. And I'm going to get there in a second. But the word joy is connected with this word desire. Joy in the Bible comes from a word that means gladness or delight. If I could just put it simply, it's joy is the experience of getting what you want. You get is what is getting what you truly desire in life. And therefore we can have this experience called joy. And we were created for joy. In Genesis 1, as God created the heavens and the earth and he created a place called Eden, well, the meaning of Eden is the place of delight, the place of pleasures. That's what Eden means. It's where all of the desires that you express in life are truly fulfilled. And the picture of Eden is where humanity rightly desired and all of those longings were fulfilled in the presence and the gifts and the graces of God. That's the meaning of Eden. That's, that's what the place of Eden represents is here's the presence of God and all these good, strong, emotional desires that we have are ultimately fulfilled and now we can experience joy because our deepest desires in life are fulfilled. There was no discontentment. There was no dissatisfaction. There was joy in that place. That is the Bible's way of describing life. That is what life is supposed to be. That's what it means to be fully alive. It's where all the desires of your heart are met. And therefore you can rejoice. And the fall in Genesis 3, when humanity chose to choose something other than God, 
The fall was a distraction of that desire where we believed that our happiness would be fulfilled in something other than God. It wasn't just that we disobeyed and did the wrong thing. We believed that it was in something other than God that our desires would be fully met. Sin destroyed our joy, and it still does today. We no longer enjoy people. We tend to use them. That's what sin does. We no longer enjoy time that we're given. It feels like a prison. That's what sin does. We no longer have these, you know, our our very God-given desires have been corrupted. I mean, this is why we believe in restoration. It's why we're called Restoration Church. That as we've discussed already the last couple of weeks in this series, that through Jesus, as we grow, we are being restored to that original picture of Eden, to the image of God, what it means to be fully human. That's why I said two weeks ago, it's not that Laura becomes less of herself as she grows. She actually becomes more of the Laura that was always intended to be. You become fully human. Jesus says as you grow in John 15 that through Him, says that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Restoration means that we don't just pray a prayer and then we peace out and carry on with life. It means that through Jesus we're changed down to our very desires so that we know what it truly means to be human, to be fully alive. The Bible doesn't present life as just breath that goes in and out of our lungs, but it's a restoration of all things. That, to me, is compelling. It shows a world of what life is supposed to be about. Not that we just do all the right stuff and are miserable people. Like, what an uncompelling picture of a church that does all the right things, but is just miserable to be around. You know what I mean? Like, what an uncompelling picture. But what is compelling? It shows a world what life is supposed to be about. A people that don't just do things for God, but actually delight in Him. That are filled with joy. Romans 6. So go to Romans 6. That was my introduction to Romans 6. And I'm not going to take too long. I actually do want to give some time afterwards to discuss, because these messages tend to be more very practical. And I do have some questions that you can talk and pray and meditate on after we take communion at the end. Romans 6. I'm just going to read it and make, like I said, I'm not going to take much time. I'm going to read the whole chapter and then make some comments. Because I think it's connected to uh, how our de- even our very desires are changed. Romans 6 says this. What shall we say then? I'm going to read the whole chapter. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, that's an important word, over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as righteous, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? And this is the second half of ch- chapter six is, is very much repetitive, but I'll read it. I'll read it. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart or all holistically obedient down to your very desires, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification or growth. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard, in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, I pray that the Spirit now, as we quickly survey this great chapter of Scripture, this life-changing chapter of Scripture, that we would learn what it looks like to not just make a decision to follow Jesus and to be saved, but to be holistically, down to our very desires, changed, that we would want Him. And the only way we experience joy, as, as we see in this passage, the only way we experience joy is if our very desires are changed so that we actually get the things that we desire. Lord, but if our desires are not changed, we remain disappointed. We remain miserable. We can serve you, but if what we really want in life is not you, we're going to remain miserable. Because we'll never get what we really want. And yet you promised the greatest thing, which is you. In Psalm 1611, God, you promise that at your right hand, in your presence, are pleasures evermore. There's joy and delight, the Garden of Eden in your presence. Lord, may we want that. May we actually desire that in this life. Lord, we pray for all these things in your name. Amen. I can't go into much detail. There are some theological heads, probably for some of you, in the room that wish we could just walk through this really detailed and I would love to do that but I don't have time to do that this morning so I'm just going to kind of pick some things out and how this relates to what we're talking about this morning 
The whole context of Romans 6, if you caught it in the, the rhetorical question that's asked at the beginning, in Romans 1 to 5, there's this whole argument, if you read through the first five chapters of Romans, of our, of our sin before God, our, our unbelief, our rebellion before God, but then Jesus came and we've been justified by grace through faith. That as we express faith in Jesus, we are declared just before Him. It's like the, 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 the concept of justification is this picture where we have been called before the judge and we stand and He actually declares us as innocent, not as guilty because someone has paid the, the, the cost or the punishment in our place and so therefore we can be declared free, innocent, not guilty. We can stand forgiven. And then the question though, as, as, that, as amazing of a truth as that is, and if you in this room, most of you have probably said, yes, I am justified before God. I, I believe that Jesus came into my life. He, he came into this world, died on a cross for my sins. I believe that he has paid the penalty for my sins. And I express that through faith, by faith. And I stand justified before the judge that he's going to declare me free and innocent. And then the rhetorical question begins in chapter 6. Well, if that's true, what else really matters? Does growth matter? If you're declared innocent, if you're saved, you know that you're saved at summer camp one summer, like, does it matter how you live? As long as you've got this truth that you're clinging to, that you went forward at, at, a, at a youth service or a worship service, does, it, does, any of, does anything else matter as long as you've got that decision made right? Like, does growth matter? Does my life matter? Does it, do, I, do, I, do I need to actually live out the things of God? Do I need to be changed if I'm saved? That's the question. Like, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Obviously, the obvious answer is by no means. That's not really, you've missed the whole point of being justified. Here's the first thing. Jesus didn't die so you could just stand. Jesus died so you could walk through this life. He didn't die just so you could stand forgiven. He died so you can now walk, as it says in verse 4, in newness of life. So that now, this old self that has been crucified, it's died, now you actually live a new life. That's, the, that's why Jesus came to die. And if, if we're not pursuing that, if we're not walking in newness of life and growing in our faith, then we're really we're missing why Jesus came to die in the first place. If we're not walking in newness of life. That as Jesus died, we died to our old life, but He was raised and now we are raised to walk a new life, that our growth is only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, the grace of God was shown for a justification, but also as it says in verse 22, the fruit you get leads to what's called sanctification, which is our growth and our change and our transformation as we become the people that God has intended us to be. Grace is for justification, but also for our sanctification. Jesus didn't die just so you could stand. He died so you could walk. In this passage as well, the meaning of life and death goes beyond just 
Landon's heart beating and breathing in, inhale, I'm doing opposite, inhale, exhale. That's not what Romans 6 is the meaning of life and death. Secondly, in this passage, not only did Jesus not just die so you could stand, not just to stand so you could walk, the meaning of life and death, life in God, means whatever has claim of you, whatever has dominion over you. In our humanistic world, none of us like to think that Anything has dominion over us, but it's clear that in Romans 6 says something has dominion over you. And it's either your old self or the sin nature or Jesus. Something has, we answer to something. We obey our master. That's what it says. There's this whole slavery metaphor. If you look in verse 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's not that just so we no longer would sin, but that we would no longer be a slave of our sin. Like, There's a whole deeper level here than just sinning. But that sin is our master. See, in the context of slavery in that day, I think Colin talked about this a number of months ago. In the context of slavery in the New Testament, we have a concept of slavery, of course, in, in later on in Western culture, we all kind of know the, uh, the, uh, the, the horrors of slavery that have existed. And there's, it's always existed, but more so in the context of New Testament slavery, of what we see is it was largely voluntary. It's a volitional decision that you make to submit yourself under someone else. It was like a job. Many people, you didn't, you, back then, you didn't just hand in your resume and hope you're hired. You know, some of you moved to Waterloo Region handing out a whole bunch of resumes, or you came because someone hired you. That's not the way it worked back then. What you would do is submit yourself. Un, most people, where, where most people were slaves back then, where you would submit yourself under someone else in order to work for them, and then you would get the benefits of being their slave. You would get food, shelter, clothing, uh, and most often a family. Like That's where you would raise children, get married and raise children, under the authority of somebody else that you're working for. That was more the context of slavery. It was largely voluntary as a volitional decision that you, play, you place yourself under someone else's authority. And by doing so, you're trusting that you will get what you need for life. That's where life was found in submission to this person. Do you understand where I'm going here? You believe this is where life is found if I submit myself to this person. And it says in verse 12 to 14, Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God for those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. You see what it's saying here? That this picture of life and death isn't just I'm saved, I've made a decision for Jesus. It's now the master that I'm obeying in my life. Like, who's my boss? Who is this? Who is the authority that I now answer to? That's the meaning of life and death. 
Thirdly, our desire is determined by that master, by our dominion. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? As I said in the beginning, desire itself is not wrong. We're all created with strong desire. Sometimes it's, we think, like, I need to tone down my desire. Like, we're all created to long and to want things in life. That's, that is good that God has actually created us. Desire often pushes us forward to long for something better than what we currently experience. But that longing is determined by your master, who you submit yourself to. It says you will obey that master. You will obey its passions. Here's where things backfire, I think. This is where we get miserable Christians. We all want happiness. And we can do things for God. We actually haven't submitted ourselves to God. We actually haven't placed ourselves under His authority. And therefore, our desire and our delight would come from Him. The question is, who is your master? And who do you answer to? Finally, guys, here it is. I got got to move through this. This is really important. Fourthly, growth, when we sit, talk about spiritual growth, growth is a changing or a transfer of the very desires that you have. See, as you continually submit to this master, even the desires of your heart change. They become more clear and this results in joy. This is really important. These two verses are really important. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, here is the truth of every Christian. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you had no choice, you had to obey sin because that was your master. Uh, It says that you were once slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart, like down to your very heart desire to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you now become not free from everything, but now you become slaves. You now submit yourself to a different master. You become slaves of righteousness. I think two things happen when when, when we have a transfer of desire. Here it is. And I need to make this clear because this isn't just like an automatic thing. This is what happens as we grow and we, we submit ourselves more and more and more and more to the authority of King Jesus as an apprentice of Jesus. Here's the two things that I think happen as, as our desires change and as we submit ourselves more and more and more and more. Here's the first one, okay? We finally start to see sin for what it is, which is destructive. We finally start to see sin for what it is, which is destructive. I think a lot of us grow up and as we mature, if we have immature faith, sin is this picture of a party that we're not invited to. 
or like we're not allowed to go to. It's where, that's, where, that's where joy is. That's where I really want to be, but I'm not allowed to be there. You know what I'm saying? Rather than seeing it for what it actually is, which is destructive. <laughs> I know for me growing up, because I grew up in more, more of a strict upbringing, that, that was my view of sin. It wasn't like this destructive thing that if I meddle in it, it's going to lead me down a dark path that I don't want to be in. It was a, man, I really want to be there, but I'm not invited to the party. <laughs> but, but I'm not allowed to go. You understand what I'm saying? It's like I'm doing the right things, but my desires haven't actually changed. I still want sin. Sin is still my master. I still desire it. That's what growth looks like, though, is you start to see sin for what it is, which is destructive. Nikki and I watched a fun movie. If you have a family, it's a fun movie. Uh, We watched... Oh shoot, now I can't remember what it's called. It clearly was an amazing movie. I can't remember what it's called. It was, oh, it was called Yes Day. It was, it was, I don't know if it's on Netflix or Disney Plus or something like that. What's that? Jennifer Garner. Well done, well done. Thank you, Kiel. Jennifer Garner's in it, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but it's, it's just a wholesome movie. And we also watched we also watched the newest MCU, The Eternals, the night before. I liked Yesterday better than The Eternals, okay? So uh, that, was, that tells you what I thought of The Eternals movie. But the, uh, this movie is all about the fam- family. They give their kids permi- they, they have one day where they, give their, they, they can't say no to their kids, and the kids, it's a wild adventure. The point is, <laughs> the kids made some foolish decisions, and they chose, they desired things that they shouldn't desire, one of which was not to give away the whole movie, but you can picture one of the little boys chooses to have about a hundred junior high age kids over for a party, and they do science experiments, and at the beginning, you think, this is a great idea, but by the end, he's like, oh, shoot, what have I done? This was the worst idea Possible. See, that's what growth does when we look at sin in our life. We begin to see it for what it really is, which is not a party that we're not invited to. It's destructive. Secondly, more importantly, we see God for who He is as the place of pleasure and delight. That's as our desires change. We see God for who He is as the place of pleasure and delight, not as a strict overlord where where fun is not allowed and joy is not allowed. And everyone must be serious at all times of the day and only gloomy people are allowed in His presence. God is the place of happiness and delight and pleasure. As Psalm 1611 says, in your right hand are pleasures evermore. Here, one correction I think we need to make as Christians is this, and how we, in our perspective, holiness and happiness are not enemies. And to be more holy doesn't mean you need to be less happy. In fact, if your desire truly changes for God and the things of God, more holiness should lead you to more happiness in life. 
as you become more a part of more more like the person of Jesus, the more holy you become, the more happy you become. I think we have to be careful as we there's that one was that one marriage book that we talk about where I think Nikki, Nikki and I read it before we were married. It's called Sacred Marriage. It's a good book, but I think it's a misunderstanding, or it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a something I think we need to be aware of. Where it says God didn't, God didn't design marriage. I think I'm butchering the subtitle. God didn't design marriage for your happiness, but for your holiness. While I understand what He's saying. Is a misunderstanding of the life that God has intended us to live. Which is a faithful, holy marriage is supposed to bring you joy. It's not supposed to make you miserable. Because <laughs> boy, I know a lot of Christian marriages where it's like, yes, we've been faithful. We go to church. But they're just miserable. It's just not compelling. It's not a compelling life. God wants us to delight in Him. And as, our, as we grow and our desires change, I think the happiest Christians are the ones who have gotten over themselves and don't live for themselves and who live for God. That being said, I gotta close. Before I leave you with some questions, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray and uh, we're gonna take communion, and then I'm gonna leave you with a couple questions that you can meditate on and pray about. So let me, uh, or think about. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your work. It's simplicity. Lord, that you intend each and every follower each and every apprentice to have the same joy as you promised in John 15, that your joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. That as we follow you in life, as difficult as that is, it's not supposed to make us miserable, it's actually supposed to give us the things that we've always wanted, which is you. Man, God, I even in my own life, as I consider the things that I wanted, I'm so glad you didn't give them to me. Where my desires lie often, in my immaturity, I am so glad that you did not give me those things. You've spared me from destruction. Lord, and as we pursue you, as we grow in our faith, you promise to make us happy in you in your presence, in this experience of Eden, which is to be fully alive. God, may Restoration Church be a church that isn't miserably serving God, but that we do it out of joyful hearts. God, as we take communion now, Lord, we're thankful for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that by your death you've saved us and forgiven us, that we could stand before you as justified and forgiven of our sins. But by your resurrection, we now walk in newness of life. As, as you walked out of that grave, 
you call us to do the same thing as we turn around from our sinful desires, the things that we've submitted ourselves to, and now walk in freedom and in apprenticeship and in discipleship of our Master Jesus. Lord, may we do this out of joy because we're getting what we want. Pray for all these things in your name. Amen.